Good morning, church. I'm not Pastor Paul, I'm Tilly Remy. I was asked to do a really short testimonial about the Alpha program that will start again in April, and I did it exactly three years ago. I think we even started on a February, because I still remember it was winter. And um, I want to shortly tell you how I ended up at the Alpha program here, and it was that a couple of months before the program, um, we started to go um, to this church, my daughter and myself. And um, the idea actually came from my daughter, because she faced some challenges at that time, and she said, you know, Mom, can we go to church? Maybe God can help. I heard about him in school. And I said, absolutely, I'd do anything um, that would help us as a family. And so we started to come to church. She started to go to youth group, and she had a lot of questions that I simply couldn't answer. And so a friend of ours invited me and said, there's a really great program, and it's called Alpha Program. You will learn a lot there and um, about God. And I thought, I do that. That's how I can help my family or answer questions. And so I started that program with an intention, and I made that very clear with my first attitude. I'm here to learn about God, to answer the questions for my daughter. I'm not here for myself. It's really for her. It didn't last very long until I felt a warm, fuzzy feel in my heart. Something shifted, something changed, and um, I totally knew suddenly I'm not here for anybody else than for myself. I was called here to be here and um, to have that transformation. And um, I just want to share with you, come to that program, it's wonderful. It was really a turning point in my life. It set the foundation to, yeah, to start a journey to grow spiritually, mentally, emotionally, even physically, because we had a really great supper every night there when we met. <laughs> and... Um, yeah, the one that I also remembered when I walked out after the program, I didn't feel alone anymore. Not only because I have you here as my church community, but I knew I have a God, I have a Father, I'm a child of God, and I'm never alone anymore. And I thought, I want to keep on going, I want to learn, I want to grow, I got curious. And so I said to Pastor Paul, I really want to hang on to that God, I not want to let go anymore. And he said to me, Tilly, you not have to hang on at all. He's always with you because he carries you always in his hand. And that is something I would love that you experience that as well, that shift, that turn. If you're new to that church, start with that program. It's wonderful. If you have a friend, if you have a family member, you may think they can benefit from them. Share what I'm sharing here. Point it out. Um, ask the office how that works with the program and give it a chance. And if you have further questions, come to me, talk to me. I even talk to your friend or family member. I really want to help out here and want to let you or your friends or your family experience the same that I experienced. So, yeah, happy Sunday and God bless you. Amen. Thank you, Tilly, for sharing. Uh, it's always good to hear from people who've been benefited by something, right? And she's sharing her story with you. This morning we are going to celebrate the Lord's table and uh, this is exciting because it's a renewal of our covenant with God. I think that's so powerful. Let me just begin by reading uh, words that Paul wrote. He said, for I received from the Lord but I also pass on to you. The Lord Jesus on the night he was betrayed, he took bread and when he had given thanks he broke it and said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So whenever God created a covenant, both the old covenant and the new covenant, there was a meal. And in the, 
you know, I, I was just reading about the old covenant meal the, the other day, but this is the new covenant meal, and this is where God says, you know, I'm going to give you a new heart. I'm going to give you the ability to do the law. You know, before that, you can know the right thing to do, but you're powerless to actually do it. You keep, you know, messing up. This new covenant transforms our hearts and gives us a want to and a desire and an empowerment to do the right thing because now we have Christ living within us. So let's pray over this emblem that represents the body of Christ. Father, we thank you for sending your son to die on a cross so that we could be uh, reconciled to you, at one with you. And I thank you for that. I thank you that even as we partake of this bread, we're making a declaration today that you died for us and we're renewing our covenant with you today. And we thank you for that in Jesus' name, amen. Let's eat this bread together. It says in the same way after supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it and remember to me. For whenever you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And I love reminding us that whenever we're partaking of this, what we're really doing is we're, re, you know, we're making a declaration. Number one, Jesus died for our sins. Number two, he rose again from the dead. How can you say that, Pastor? Because he's coming back again. And that's the third declaration. We have a tremendous hope. And in a world of great confusion, people looking for answers, you know, Jesus Christ is actually not only the creator of the world, he is the savior of the world. We just sang that. So let's pray. Lord, I thank you that this cup represents the sacrifice you made on our behalf. The requirements in the Old Testament was that sacrifice was rendered when people sinned. And Lord, you took our sin upon you as you became our substitution by dying on the cross for us. We thank you that you bore our sins. And now you have given to us your forgiveness and your standing before the Father. We are now declared righteous. We're in a right relationship with you. We thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's drink this cup together. If you can hang on to these and just uh, drop them off as you leave, there's uh, some dispensers there for that. I'm gonna have you stand this morning. We're gonna pray. I'm gonna ask God for his assistance this morning as we look at uh, a continuation of probably one of the most challenging prophets in the Old Testament, Jeremiah. You're gonna see, and probably this chapter has probably challenged me more than any other. So Father, I just thank you this morning that you are with us and that you wanna speak into our lives and that you wanna instruct us in the way we should go. I pray today, Lord, so often when we hear messages, we're hearing messages that have been given many years ago by people who knew you, were inspired by you, and they're actually speaking on your behalf. They're prophets. I pray that we will hear your voice today, not only speaking to that generation, but speaking to our generation and speaking to us specifically and individually. I pray today, Father, that we will be able to walk away from here you know, many times, you know, we've been comforted, we've been encouraged, but today we're gonna to be challenged and, and we're gonna be warned. 
And I pray that we'll recognize that love also warns us. Love also challenges us so that we can do what is right in your sight and experience life and blessing rather than destruction and death. And we thank you for that. In Jesus' name and God's people said, amen, amen. So you may be seated. Probably, we're in chapter seven, by the way. Probably one of the great temptations in the Christian life is to know to do the right thing and then not do it. Just ignore it, neglect it. You know, there's many different ways you can disobey God. That's one of the ways. And how many realize that hypocrisy is always a present danger? Now, I'm not talking about sinning. I'm not talking about falling. I'm not talking about, you know, that happens from time to time. I get all of that. Hypocrisy is really an attitude of false security. It's an indifference towards behaving in an ethical and moral manner. In other words, we think that we're, we're, we're okay when in reality we're violating God's moral precepts, his laws. You know, as a matter of fact, hypocrisy is usually fostered when there's a sense of spiritual entitlement rather than a heart of gratitude and appreciation because we're God's children. You know, we're living in a time right now where people, you know, we, we, we sense it so deeply, this entitlement mentality. We're just demanding, 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 and we're complaining, and we're critical, and we're upset all the time. But, you know, that's not the heart of where God wants us to get to. God wants us to be filled with thanksgiving and gratitude, and that's where we want to get to in our journey with God. That, you know, even though there's challenges in life, you and I can rise above those, those challenges and actually express thanksgiving and gratitude because our eyes and hope are not on the things below here. We're looking higher up. As a matter of fact, when, we, when you think the world is coming unglued, just remember what Luke reminded us of. He said, lift up your eyes, your what? Your redemption is drawing near. And that's the hope that you and I have as believers. Now, here in Jeremiah chapter seven and then the first three verses of chapter eight, you'll notice something if you have your Bibles the translators have done that something for us. You know, Bible's Old Testament is written in Hebrew, translated into English. You'll notice that the writing, the marginning, all of those things have changed because this is a narrative passage. It's actually a sermon where the first six chapters have been poetic in nature. So we're gonna take a look at Jeremiah preaching to his contemporaries uh, back in like uh, five the 580s, 570 BC, before Christ's coming. So this is a long time ago. And he's standing at the temple. This is one of his temple sermons that we find in the book of Jeremiah. And it's actually a warning. And here we're gonna see three movements designed actually to create change in our lives. You know, we're either, and I'm gonna share this a little later, we're either moving towards God or we're moving away from God. We're either advancing, we're either progressing, or we're digressing. And so we have to figure out what direction are we moving in? Because there's nobody that's standing still. There's no, stat, you know, you can say, well, I'm just being stagnant, pastor. No, you're actually moving backwards. There's, there's a, actually a current, it's like a river. There's always this little current. And you know, if you don't pay attention, you find yourself that you've drifted. And there's a thing called spiritual drift, and I see it happening. And it happens in all of our lives from time to time, so we need to be aware of that. So the first uh, thing that we need to understand here, the first movement is really a call for reformation, or a call for amending our ways, or changing our ways, or repenting, changing our minds, doing what God is asking us to do. And I think we're constantly in that process of challenge. And, 
It usually comes about as we listen to God. And God's word is before us, and so we have an opportunity to hear what God is saying, understand it, then begin to apply it into our lives. That's what brings about transformation and change in our lives. God's covenant is ethical and moral in nature. That's an important concept. The ethical and moral aspects are there to facilitate healthy relationships, how we relate to each other, how we relate to God. These are, you know, it's important that we understand these things. And I think one of the great misconceptions today is that we're living in, primarily in the Christian church, is that because we're living under God's grace, we think that God's moral law is no longer relevant. Now, what I'm gonna say to you right now is it's totally relevant, and actually what God's grace does is teach us to say no to worldliness and ungodliness and teaches us how to live a moral and ethical life, but gives us the power to do it so that we're actually operating on the right principle. And the right principle isn't just, you know, grind it out, do the right thing. It's actually we're empowered by the principle of love in our lives. There's a power inside of us, a loving power, that when I start loving God and loving my neighbor, I'm actually living an ethical and moral life. It's really amazing. I'm actually doing what the Bible wants me to do. I'm fulfilling the law in that sense. That's how powerful it is. Now, Jeremiah begins this message by calling for them to fulfill their covenant obligations. And if you read the Old Testament carefully, you'll realize that there's, there's, you know, God creates a covenant with his people and there's obligations to it. God says, if you do these things, I will bless you. If you do these things, you will experience curses. And God keeps challenging us, choose life, choose blessing rather than the curses and death. And we read that, and, and we're gonna see that here in a minute. But let's begin with Jeremiah chapter seven, verse one. This is the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Stand at the, at the gate of the Lord's house, the temple, and there proclaim this message. Hear the word of the Lord, all you people of Judah who come through these gates to worship the Lord. So here they were coming to the temple. Now, I want you to think about this. We, we've come to the church today, and we're gonna hear what God has to say. And Jeremiah either was there in person preaching this message or he sent his uh, assistant Baruch with a scroll written by Jeremiah, but he had the words of God down and they're reading these words or Jeremiah is proclaiming these words and you and I can either do one or two things. We can either go back in time in our minds and go back to that time and listen to the prophet speak what God wants to say and then we can start considering how does that apply to my life and my time or we can advance Jeremiah to this moment and he's saying these words and what shocked me and as I was studying this passage is absolutely how relevant these texts are for the moment in which we're living. It's almost as if Jeremiah is here in, in Canada in 2022. And he's actually here now gonna speak to us. And let's, let's listen to what God wants to say in this moment. This is what the Lord Almighty, uh, the God of Israel says, reform your ways and your actions and you will live in this place. So part of the, the covenant obligations was for them to live you know, in, in compliance with God's covenant moral ethical laws. And if they did that, God would bless them and they would stay in the land. But if they refused to do that, God said, I'm gonna take you out of the land. That's the consequence. I'm gonna exile you. You're gonna be moved away. And so let's just take a look at how Moses presents this in the book of Leviticus. He was speaking to his generation, but now hundreds of years later, 
Jeremiah is picking up exactly what Moses is laying down. And what I'm trying to do today is give you what Moses and Jeremiah laid down and apply it to our moment. Listen to what he says. If in spite of this, you still do not listen to me, but continue to be hostile towards me. Wow, you ever thought about my indifference, apathy, or neglect, or disobedience is actually hostility towards God. I'm not enmity with God. Actually, James says friendship with this society, the world, the way the culture and the values are, is to be at enmity, at war with God. We're in hostility with God. How many go, I'd like to make peace with God. I'd rather not God have my, as my enemy. I want God to be my friend, not my enemy, right? He goes on to say here, then in my anger, I will be hostile towards you, and I myself will punish you for your sins seven times over. I'd say, how, what, would you kind of classify this as a warning? Anybody see this as a warning? I see this as a warning. Pay close attention. God is warning us. Verse 29, you will eat the flesh of your sons and the flesh of your daughters. This is disgusting. What does that tell me? That these guys are going to actually be in a time of famine. They'll be so hungry that they'll be resorting to things that they would never have ever considered in their life. Can you imagine the kind of difficulty that he's talking about here? I'm not interested in this kind of difficulty. I will destroy your high places, cut down your incense altars, pile your dead bodies on the lifeless forms of your idols, and I will abhor you. God says, I'm gonna, you're gonna die on the very things that you've been worshiping. The things that you thought were gonna bring you life are gonna bring you death. That's challenging. You know, I'm gonna make this statement. There's a lot of things in our culture today that we think is gonna give enjoyment and pleasure and bring life to us, and it's actually bringing death to us and we don't even realize it. He goes on, I will turn your cities into ruins and I will lay waste your sanctuaries and I will take no delight in the pleasing aroma of your offerings. In other words, God says, you know, you can, you can go through the, the ritual of worshiping me. You can do these offerings. You can do these sacrifices, but I'm ignoring them. And there's a reason for it, because you are idolaters. We just read it in the verse before. He goes on, I myself will lay waste the land so that your enemies who live there will be appalled. People will be, stu they'll be stunned at how God became the enemy of the people. God will be shocked. People around will be shocked by this response. I will scatter you among the nations and I will draw out my sword and pursue you. Your land will be laid waste and your cities will lie in ruin. I don't know, those are pretty stark words. Then the last ones here. Then the land will enjoy its Sabbath years, which means rest, all the time that it lies desolate, and you are in the country of your enemies. Then the land will rest and enjoy its Sabbath. Now, let me explain something to you. For 490 years, the Jewish people, the Israelites there, did not honor God to give rest to the land at all. So what did God do when they finally rebelled and stayed you know, doing their own thing. They were idolaters the whole time. After 490 years, God says, I've had enough. I'm exiling you. I'm scattering you. And they stayed out of the land for 70 years. So for every year, they, you know, they didn't rest the land. God made the land rest. It's interesting how God does things, isn't it? Now, he had prepared them. He had warned them. He had talked to them about this. This was their covenant. Moses had laid it down. They had ignored it. And there was a consequence. So then we recognize Jeremiah continues his sermon. I'm giving you a little bit of the background. If you don't understand this covenant responsibility, this sermon makes no sense. That's why I'm doing this. Now, look what Jeremiah says to them. 
Do not trust in deceptive words and say, this is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. You go, what's he talking about here? Well, they felt secure that they could live any way they wanted to, but you know what? The temple was there, therefore God was there, therefore they were okay. They made certain uh, decisions based on the temple's presence being there. Now, what was Jeremiah really getting at? Well, Tremper Longman says this, the temple, of course, was the primary symbol of God's presence with his people. And it appears that they were taking solace in the superficial trappings of religion. They were going through the motions. You know, we can come to church and actually go through the motions. You know, how many recognize that? After a while, we can be here, but we're really not here. We're kind of checked out. And then eventually people drift off, and then eventually people aren't serving God anymore. And how does that all happen? Because somewhere down the line, it just became a ritual for us. It's not, we're not connecting with God. We're not here to really hear God's voice. We're not really here to respond to him. We're not really here to worship him. That's what starts happening. He goes on to say, then they wrongly reasoned that God would let nothing happen to his earthly residence. In other words, hey, we've got a temple here. God's never gonna do anything with that. So they took solace in the very presence of the temple. We see that this presumption is based on a misunderstanding of God's connection with the temple. See, when it was built and dedicated by Solomon, in 1 Kings it said, he, Solomon made this prayer, God, you cannot, you know, the heavens and the universe can't contain your presence. But I'm asking you in a unique way to come to this place on earth and it'll be a designated holy place. But you know what? God doesn't just live in one spot. He's omnipresent. He's everywhere present at one time. But in a unique sense, he was there at the temple. They made the assumption that because the temple is there, God was there, therefore they were okay. Wrong assumption. Now, the problem was that the people were not trusting in God, not living out their faith. They were just going through external motions. We've already acknowledged that. One of the problems we have sometimes as Christians is we've developed this concept that, you know, we've tried to tame God down. We want to have a safe God. We want to have a God that we can manipulate and control. And I see that a lot of times. And when when I read some stuff by certain Christians, I'm going, you know, they're just trying to manipulate God or tame God down. But I want to make a shocking statement to you today. God is dangerous. God is uh, someone you can't control. You, you can't tame them down. You, you know, I, I'm going to think about the story. Let, let, let's go this way. C.S. Lewis, he's, he's writing the Chronicles of Narnia. How many have ever read those books or seen the movie, The Chronicles of Narnia? The Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe. Okay, remember the story? These children are, you know, it's a Second World War plot. Uh, C.S. Lewis is living in that time. He writes about this. The kids go to, up north in England. Their bombs are falling down. This during the Second World War, they go through this wardrobe and they come into the land of Narnia. It's a fantasy land. But what Lewis is doing is he's trying to portray Christian concepts inside of Narnia. He gets inside of there and there's the winter scene and death is raining and uh, there's temptation in the story. You remember all of that? And eventually they're running for their lives against the white witch and they run into these beavers that actually talk. All of these uh, creatures all talk, right? And so Mr. and Mrs. Beaver now are saying that there's a legend. And the legend is that four young people are going to come and they're going to help, you know, and, and find Aslan. And the whole thing is going to get changed. Remember, Aslan is actually a Christ figure. 
And Lewis knows that. And so he's doing this on purpose. So Aslan is, uh, you know, the lion of the tribe of Judah. So you can see the, the imagery that Lewis is using there. So the, in the story, Mrs. Beaver is saying, we have to get to Aslan. And he's a lion. And little Lucy's just this little girl. She's terrified by this idea. And she says, is he safe? You know, and Mr. Beaver pipes up and he goes, safe? He says, didn't you hear what Mrs. Beaver t- said? Who said anything about being safe? Of course he's not safe, but he's good. You see, we need to understand something about God. God is not safe, but he is good. As a matter of fact, when you're reading in the Old Testament, one of the main ideas that are being portrayed is of the holiness of God, that God is transcendent, God is beyond us, God is different, God is morally without any impurity. God is uh, unlike us in many, many ways. And so uh, we read the story. Remember, I'm gonna take you back to the Old Testament. Here's the Philistines. They've conquered the Israelites because they had sinned against their God. They were, again, doing terrible things. And what does God do? He, you know, he, the ark is captured. This piece of furniture that represents the presence of God. And God's presence is in there. And he goes from city to city. And everywhere he goes, there's plagues that come against the Philistines. Finally, they decide, we've got to get rid of the ark because it's killing us. Literally, God's holy presence is bringing death into our communities. So they put the ark on a cart. Remember that? And they send it from these two cows that had babies and they, you know, little calves. And they thought, hey, if, it's, if this is really the God of the Israelites, you know, that, that cart is going to head on to their territory regardless regardless of the little calves, you know, crying out for their mothers. And sure enough, that's exactly what happens. And you know, the rest of the story, it's found here in 1 Samuel 6, 19, when they finally got to the territory where the Israelites were, it says God struck some of them down, some of the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh, putting 70 of them to death because they looked into the ark of the Lord. Can you imagine? They opened it up and immediately they died. I tell you, that's a pretty strong statement of, you know, you better approach God in the right way because otherwise you could die. The people mourned because of the heavy blow the Lord had dealt them. And the people of Beshemeth said, who can stand in the presence of the Lord, this holy God? To whom will the ark go up from here? Powerful. Teaching us a powerful lesson, you know. Now, Jeremiah continues on with his sermon. Now he's gonna explain really what they were doing that was problematic. What were they doing that God was upset about? Well, he goes on and says, if you really change your ways and your actions and deal with each other justly or in the right way. He says, if you do not oppress the foreigner, the fatherless or the widow, and do not shed innocent blood in this place, and if you do not follow other gods to whom, uh, to your own harm, Then I will let you live in this land and the place I gave you, your ancestors, forever and ever. So God is basically saying the way we treat each other is deemed by God how we're treating God. And the way we treat the people that are weaker than ourselves, like the marginalized, the poor, uh, the, the people that are new to our country, whatever that situation is, that's, that's what God is looking at. Um, so he, he doesn't want us to build our lives on a false sense of security, but rather he wants us to treat people correctly. So God's focus on our moral and ethical behavior is all relational. If you look at the Ten Commandments, it's interesting. 
The first four deal with our relationship with God. The last six deal with our relationship with human beings. And it's all about treating people with love. It's all about loving God above everyone else and loving people and treating them correctly. But see, he goes on to say, but you're trusting in deceptive words that are worthless. Will you steal and murder and commit adultery and perjury? See, these are all part of the Ten Commandments. And burn incense to Baal and follow other gods you've not known. In other words, you're committing, you're violating the first of the commandments. Thou shalt have no other god, right? You see what he's doing? He's, he's taking the covenant and saying you're violating these points. And then come and stand before me in this house which bears my name and say, we're safe. We're okay. We can do all of these. De-. And he says, we're safe to do all these detestable things. In other words, let me get, contemporize it. Hey, it doesn't matter how I live as long as I you know, come to God and you know, ask for forgiveness. You know, that's kind of a mentality we develop. You know, we just go, it's God's grace. We can live any way we want to and God's grace will cover me. You see, the grace of God doesn't teach us to go out and sin and just live any which way. The grace of God actually says to say no to all godlessness and all worldliness. The grace of God is designed to create within our hearts a gratitude for God's forgiveness and an abhorrence to what once entrapped us in the sin. That's what we need to understand. He says, has this house which bears my name become a den of robbers to you? But I've been watching, declares the Lord. In other words, a lot of times we do things. We say, well, you know, I'm doing the wrong thing and I don't get punished, so God's, God's obviously doesn't exist or he doesn't really care. And my point is, God is watching and he does care. And just because he's not dealing with you initially, it doesn't mean he won't deal with you. He's giving you a space to repent. Let me move on to the second movement. It's a call for reflection. Now, how many recognize that we have to learn from the past? We need to learn from our own past mistakes, but more importantly, we need to learn from other people's past mistakes. And I can't think of a better place than in the scriptures because we can learn from other people's relationship with God what to do and what not to do. And we get a good idea what's happening. So I, I just write down learning from the past. And that's exactly what Jeremiah starts to talk about. How many know that if we don't learn from the past, we repeat those mistakes? And that happens throughout history. Uh, verse 12, go now to the place in Shiloh. You say, what's Shiloh? Shiloh was a place where God met with Israel previously, earlier in its history. It was a shrine where I first made a dwelling for my name and see what I did to it because of the wickedness of my people Israel. What did God do? Well, he says, while you were doing all these things, declares the Lord, I spoke to you again and again, but you did not answer. In other words, I was communicating, but you were ignoring me. In other words, you were just disobeying me. Uh, therefore, what I did to Shiloh, I will now do to the house that bears my name. What did he do to Shiloh? He destroyed it. God's presence was no longer there. He, that's what happens. You know, it, it, it's not, you know, it, it's not, how do I say it? The place itself is not what's holy. The person who's there makes it holy, God's presence. The place I gave you and to your ancestors, this, this temple that you're putting your trust in, I will thrust you from my presence, just as I did all your fellow Israelites, the people of Ephraim. That's one of the northern 10 tribes. You know, so the people, Walter Brueggemann says, the people of Jerusalem could not imagine their own precious system to be in jeopardy like Shiloh. In other words, they had built a whole uh, way of life. But can you imagine our own system? our industrial, military, economic, political, 
might be in the same jeopardy as Shiloh and Jerusalem? What, what, what's, he, what's Brueggemann trying to tell us? What, what is Jeremiah trying to tell us? What is God trying to tell us? Be careful what you're putting your trust in. You know, because systems come and go. We need to know that. And could you imagine how quickly our society changed in the last few years? Let me ask you a question. Three years ago, how many could have predicted in your mind your whole life would change dramatically? How many could anticipate we'd have something like a pestilence that would come along and change all of our lives? None of us could imagine that, you know, and yet it happened. And what I'm trying to say is sometimes God, you know, allows things to change things because we were just whistling along doing our thing and God goes, no, no, I'm gonna get your attention. I'm gonna change things. There's things that are happening that I wanna begin to change. Because you see, we, we are living in a culture of death. We have to ask ourselves the question, how long can a culture that embraces death sustains life? I want you to just take a look at everything about our culture. We're, we're, we're destroying life at the beginning, we're destroying life at the end. It's a culture of death, folks. We're celebrating death as a culture. How can we sustain life when we celebrate it? But what may be even more relevant to us who are followers of Jesus, we have to ask ourselves the question, are we reflecting the values of Jesus? See, I thought Greg, what he shared last week was so profound. He was basically saying, our job isn't to copy, critique, criticize, uh, consume the culture. Our, Our job is to bring the kingdom of God into this world. See, that's the place where we needed to get to. And and I'm gonna argue that that the church was failing in her mandate prior to COVID. We were, we were consuming culture for the most part. Yeah, some people were criticizing it. Some people were you know, doing all kinds of things. But the reality was we were being impacted by the culture. And so things have changed right now for a reason. Um, you know, some people right now are upset because they're trying to prop up a system that once existed. I think God wants to change it. He wants to do something new, something different. You know, Jeremiah's generation were actually on the ropes. Uh, They were, as we are about to discover, a terminal generation. They refused to hear the truth about their condition and they found solace in what was about to be destroyed. That's a challenging thought for us right now. Is that where we're looking for our solace and what God's about to get rid of? You know, their way of life as they knew it was about to change dramatically. They were about to be exiled. That was gonna change everything, the whole equation of their life. And then God does something very shocking. He says to uh, Jeremiah, don't waste your breath. It was so bad, the hearts were so hardened, had gone on so long, they were beyond the ability to change their minds. They had gone past the no return point. You know, Jeremiah 7, 16 says, so do not pray for this people. That's a scary thought. Don't pray for them, God says, nor offer any plea or petition for them. Do not plead with me for I will not listen to you. You go, why? Well, because they, were, they had been pleaded with for hundreds of years. This is an indictment against the condition of the people. Listen to what John Thompson writes. Possibly the passage is intended to emphasize that the possibility of repentance was so remote that prayer would no longer avail. Persistent idolatry could only bring upon Judah as a consequence the curses that were unpacked in that covenant. And you say, how do we get to that place? Well, when, when we harden our hearts, eventually all that's left is judgment. I know we don't want to hear this, but it's the truth. And we see that. 
It happens over and over again in people's lives. Listen, it says, do you not see what they are doing in the towns of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem? The children gather wood, the fathers light the fire, the women knead the dough, they make cakes to offer to the queen of heaven, they pour out drink offerings to other gods to arouse my anger. But, I, but am I the one they're provoking, God says? Or are they not rather harming themselves to their own shame? What is God saying? He's saying, listen, it's so bad that the entire society, the entire culture is engaged from the children to every element of society are engaged in the promotion of idolatry. And you know what? This had been going on for a long time. 490 years. God had sent prophets to speak into their lives. They weren't listening. Uh, he goes on now to say this, this, therefore, because of this, this is what the sovereign Lord says, my anger and my wrath will be poured out on this place, on man and beasts, on trees, on field, on the crops of your land, it will burn and not be quenched. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel says, go ahead, add your burnt offerings to your other sacrifices and eat the meat yourselves. Let me just go back to verse 20 and just say this, you know, recognize what sin does? Sin not only affects me, it affects the people around me but it not only affects people, it affects the environment. And I think we're looking around our culture today and saying, you know what, the environment's even affected by our behavior. And we need to recognize that. And then he goes on to say this in verse 21. When you read this, I had to say to myself, what's he talking about here? But I like what Tremper Longman explains the significance of what he's saying. It begins with this interesting admonition that requires a little bit of knowledge of the sacrificial system to understand. Of the three main sacrifices, burnt offering, grain offering, and peace offering, only the burnt offerings were totally dedicated to God and beyond any human consumption. In other words, the other two offerings, when you offered them to God, you actually partook in those offerings. You brought a you know, meal offering, you could bake bread, and you got some of the bread. You brought some of these other offerings, and you, you ended up eating some of it. So you were benefiting from it. But the burnt offering, totally given to God. But then he goes on, because it was an atonement sacrifice to help us to get into a right relationship with God. And though the skin was removed, the entire animal was burned on the altar. In this verse, God says that God's people may just as well eat the burnt offering since it's gonna do them no good thanks to their sin and lack of repentance. In other words, God says, I'm not paying attention to anything you're doing. You're just going through the motions. You're not, your heart is disengaged. You're just, it's just a, a ritual with you. And you know, I've been around Christianity all my life and some, I've seen it where it becomes ritualistic for some people, but it's not heartfelt. And that's dangerous to get to that place. In verse 22, he says, for when I brought your ancestors out of Egypt and spoke to them, I did not give them commandments about burnt offerings and sacrifices, or said, did I not? But then he goes, but I gave them this command, obey me and I will be your God and you will be my people. In other words, God says, I'm more concerned about obedience than sacrifice. You'll hear that tone in other places in the scriptures. I will be your God and you will be my people. Walk in obedience to all I command you and then it will go well with you. God says, hey, listen, just do what I say and you're gonna prosper. Now, I didn't focus on the upside of everything. If you do the right things, your life's gonna be good. But if you do the wrong things, you're gonna suffer. That's the essence of what the scripture's teaching us. But they did not listen or pay attention. Instead, they followed the stubborn inclinations of their evil hearts and they went backward and not forward. See, that's the point. You and I can actually be regressing rather than progressing. And so God is calling us to himself and says, hey, advance. 
But sometimes we just get caught up with life. We turn our back on God. The next thing you know, we're regressing. And we don't even realize it sometimes. We're just kind of drifting, you know, and we end up somewhere where we never thought we'd get to. How did I get to this place where I'd make these kind of compromises in my life? You drifted. That's how you get there. Let me move on to the final movement. And this is the response to rejection. You know, when God speaks into our lives over and over and over again, eventually he stops talking. In other words, when God's talking to us, the ball is in our court. <laughs> I say it that way. In other words, he's making us responsible. He's saying, hey, I'm, I'm, I'm talking to you. What are you going to do with this thing? And a lot of times people just ignore it. Oh, I've heard this before, Pastor. Well, I've heard this before. I say, yeah, but listen to me very carefully. If you keep ignoring what God says before, eventually it becomes problematic is what I'm getting at. Eventually the, the space for repentance disappears. Uh, listen what he says here in verse 25. From the time your ancestors left Egypt until now, day after day, again and again I sent my servants the prophets. You know, but they did not listen to me. Now, this, is, this is not God you know, saying something last week or last year or even a generation. This is God speaking to them over hundreds of years and they're just not listening. How many go? That's a tremendous amount of self-restraint and patience, I think. God shows that kind of self-restraint and patience towards us. But he said they were stiff-necked. In other words, they, were, they, they refused to turn. You know, they did more evil than their ancestors. Things were getting worse and not better. That's what he was saying. If you thought your, your predecessors were bad, what we're doing is even worse. That's what Jeremiah is telling them. And I would even argue today that sometimes we look at the past generations and we make judgments against them, and God's looking down from heaven saying, yeah, but you're doing even worse. But we're not seeing it. We're blind to it. And then when I tell them all of this, they will not listen to you. And when you call to them, they will not answer. How would you like Jeremiah's job? Oh, by the way, Jeremiah, I'm calling you to talk on my behalf. But they're never going to listen to you anyways. But you know, all these other preachers that aren't preaching my message, people are flocking to hear them because they're telling them what they want. But if you, if you promote what I want, people are, are going to ignore you because they don't want to hear what you're saying. Folks, do we just want to hear what we want to hear? Or do we want to hear God speak into our lives? Do we want to respond in obedience to the voice of God? That's the question. Jeremiah is being presented with it. Therefore say to them, this is the nation that has not obeyed the Lord its God or responded to correction. Scary thought. And then he says, truth has perished. It has vanished from their lips. Now that's a very profound statement. What is he saying? He's saying that all of a sudden now, they don't know what's right anymore. They don't know what's the truth anymore. Can I say something? This culture's there. We don't know what's right anymore, and we don't know what's truth anymore. That's the scary part. And take a look at what happens. You know, when this begins to happen, we start believing a new narrative, and it's a false one. And it leads to our own destruction. And if we think this message is simply for that hour, don't be mistaken. Listen to what Paul writes to the church at Thessalonica, and he says, in the last days, this is what's gonna happen. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will overthrow with the breath of his mouth and destroy by the splendor of his coming. The coming of the lawless one will be in accordance with how Satan works. I, you know, it's interesting his name. Satan is, you know, an accuser, but think about lawless one, the person without law, somebody who's rejecting any sort of restraint. He will use all sorts of display of power through signs and wonders that serve the what? Serves the lie. That's exactly right. So people are going to believe a lie. Matter of fact, it says, in all the ways that wickedness deceives, 
uh, those who are perishing. They perish because they what? They refuse to love the truth and so be saved. You know, we can so harden ourselves that we don't want to hear the truth anymore. And therefore, we're going we're to embrace a lie. And I'll tell you something. Jesus told us the truth is what sets us free. And by the way, truth is found in a person. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And then we come to, I think, the most tragic verse in our text today, and it's found in verse 29. He says, cast off your hair and throw it away. You know, it's a shame for men, to, you know, in that time for them to cut their hair. And he said, cast it away. He said, lament on the barren heights. For the Lord has rejected and abandoned this generation that is under his wrath. There's a reason why I call this sermon the lost generation. The generation that Jeremiah was preaching to became an exiled generation, which really meant they were cut off from God in some sense. They were a lost generation. They did not fulfill God's purposes for their generation. And you know, I started to think about this. I, I thought, there's, I, I don't think there's more chilling words that could be spoken. A lost generation. A generation that would not listen to God and therefore truth perished and vanished from their lips. I don't know, I'm starting to see some things that are echoing. I'm almost thinking Jeremiah's in the house today talking to us. You know, people simply embracing and perpetrating lies and all that was left in that moment was for judgment to come. How many generations over human history have been lost? And, I, I've, t- and I've seen some of the, those generations and the terrible carnage that resulted. I want to think about a generation that God said all they could do was think about what was wicked and God said, I'm going to finally address him. And he sent Noah the preacher and he preached for 100 years and no one listened to him until finally the ark was built and the door was shut and that whole generation was lost. I think of that generation that was wandering through the wilderness, a generation who had seen the power of Almighty God deliver them out of Egypt, but now God parts the Red Sea. They're in the wilderness and what do they do? is they don't believe they can go into the promised land. You know what they use for an excuse? You know, our kids can't handle it. God says, no, your guys are, don't use your kids for an excuse. He said, no, you guys are gonna die. Your kids will go in into God's promises. That's a pretty powerful statement. You know, don't worry about your kids. They're gonna be okay. God can take care of our kids, folks. I think we need to know that. We, this generation we're living in right now, we need to do what God wants us to do. What did God do with that generation? He let them wander in the wilderness for 40 years. They did not enter into the promised land. Only two people, Caleb and Joshua, who believed God, went in. The rest of them didn't. That whole generation died. It was a lost generation. How many generations? I could go down and talk about the Assyrian exile. The northern tribes, they went into exile, a lost generation. We could talk about Jeremiah's generation who disobeyed God and God brought them into Babylon, a lost generation. I could talk about, you know, continue through the ancient societies, cultures like the Hittite society who for many years, the Bible had mentioned them but nobody believed they existed. They questioned the validity of the Bible and they found out later they existed, a lost society. How many times can we see this through human history? I could think of World War II. You want to know what the carnage was between the First and Second World War in the 20th century? They were lost generations. And we have to ask ourselves this question, are we a lost generation? It's a challenging and, ch- and, th- and chilling thought. Listen, 
Jeremiah lived in a terminal generation. It wasn't that everybody was wicked. There were righteous people, but they were so small. They were such a small remnant. They were a terminal generation. Listen to what Jeremiah says in in his closing verses. He said, the people of Judah have done evil in my eyes, declares the Lord. They've set up detestable idols in the house that bears my name and defile it. If you think Jeremiah was all by himself preaching the sermon, forget it. Ezekiel himself comes along and, and says the same thing here in verse chapter eight. He's already in exile because it went into three stages. And it says, son of man, do you see what they're doing? The utter detestable things the Israelites are doing here, things that will drive me far from my sanctuary. But you will see things that are even more detestable. And then he goes on to talk about them. He's talking about all, on the wall, all kinds of crawling things and unclean animals and all the idols of Israel. But where are these idols? In front of them stood 70 elders of Israel, and Jezaniah, son of Shaphan, was standing among them. Each had a censer in his hand, and a fragrant cloud of incense was rising. And he brought me into the inner court of the house of the Lord. It was actually at the temple they were doing this. And there at the entrance to the temple, between the portico and the altar, there were about 25 men with their backs toward the temple of the Lord, which I think is a profound statement. They had turned their backs on God. And they were facing towards the east, and they were bowing down to the sun in the east. They were worshiping the sun. Now watch what God says. They have built the high places of Topheth in the valley of Ben-Hinnon to burn their sons and daughters in the fire, something I did not command, nor did it enter my mind. What were they doing? In Jeremiah's day, they were sacrificing their children to these idols. Is there any echoes of this in our modern time? Are we sacrificing children in this hour? Yes, we are. So beware, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when people will no longer call it Topheth or the Valley of Ben-Hinnon, but the Valley of Slaughter, for they will bury the dead in Topheth until there's no more room. In other words, God says, I'm gonna allow carnage to happen in this land. I'm gonna let this Babylonian army come in and destroy you, and he did. Then the carcasses of this people will become food for the birds and the wild animals, and there'll be no one to frighten them away. What's he saying? There'll be so much death, there'll be nobody to bury them. Talk about terrible. Verse 34, I'll bring an end to the sounds of joy and gladness, to the voice of bride and bridegroom in the towns of Judah and the streets of Jerusalem, for the land will become desolate. At that time, declares the Lord, the bones of the kings, the officials of Judah, the bones of the priests and prophets, the bones of the people of Jerusalem will be removed from their graves. They will be exposed to the sun and the moon and all the stars of heaven, which they have loved and served. They were worshiping these things, and in which they had followed and consulted and worshiped. They will be not be gathered up or buried. They will be like dung lying on the ground. Wow, what a sad story. Last verse. When I banish them, all the survivors of this evil nation will prefer death to life, declares the Lord Almighty. We're at the end. The most distressing picture. Not only are the dead left unburied, but the buried are dug up and dishonored. Walter Brueggemann says something very fascinating. He says, life becomes barbaric. And all the structures of plausibility are discredited. Is that not what's happening today? Not only will there be death, but even the dead who previously had been honored and laid in their tombs will be dislodged. Not only will forms of civility in the present and future be dysfunctional, but past acts of civility will be nullified and present wretchedness will nullify past decency. We're seeing it. We're living it in this hour. What's he saying? He's saying... We're, we're discrediting, you know, people that we used to honor. We're, we're, we're just digging them up and throwing them under the, you know. We're doing that today. I'm telling you, this, this chapter was so, you know, overwhelming to me. 
thinking about it for the last three weeks. So what is God trying to say to us through the prophet Jeremiah? Well, I think God is saying, I want you to be like me. I want you to hear my voice and do what I want you to do. I want you to start treating people correctly. I want it to move away from just form to vitality. So I'm gonna have a stand as we close. And you know, I was just thinking about, uh, so, so what, what can be done, pastor? Don't, don't leave us in the dark here. Don't leave us in despair. Don't leave us in discouragement, right? You know, give us a measure of hope. Well, here's the hope I'm gonna give you. Number one, you know, the greatest thing we can do for this generation right now is fall on our knees and cry out to God for mercy. Prayer. Number two, we need, you know, and I see it in the church, we need to communicate that there's hope in this broken world. If we're without God in this world, we're without hope. People need to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ like never before. We make an assumption sometimes that people aren't interested. Well, some of them aren't, but there's many that are, and they need to hear this message. And so I'm gonna challenge us today. And I, you know, I was so challenged, you know, how many here, you just say, you know, pastor, I don't, I, I don't feel a deep sense of urgency. I don't feel a deep sense of compassion towards my culture. I just kind of been cruising along. And I think the Spirit of God is saying, I want you to wake up. You know, in every time in past history, when the church, you know, was in a state of lethargy and indifference, or maybe they were just criticizing the culture, whatever they were doing, but all of a sudden, the Spirit of God came upon people, and they began to pray, and God started pointing out in our lives what needs to change. And all of a sudden, there, there grew, you know, a deep concern for the people around them. And there was a sense of urgency. You could feel it. Change started happening inside of people's hearts and their concern for people around them elevated. And you could see the Spirit of God moving and people's hearts opening and, and, and the culture was touched with the gospel. And I, I'm gonna ask the question, you know, in your life right now, do you feel a deep sense of compassion for this culture or are you just angry with it? See, I think the response should be compassion. The response should be, you know, that, you know, Christ is compassionate. He cares about people. That you and I would actually have a sense of urgency. I, I have to say to myself, Paul, do you feel that sense of urgency that time is running out? We only have so much time. Think of the first century. There was a sense of urgency. They thought Jesus was coming back at any minute. They were doing everything in their life to get the gospel out. We're doing everything in our life to make sure that our life is comfortable. That's what really what we're working on, usually. We're more focused on what, what benefits us in the moment rather than saying to ourselves, I'm willing to spend everything to make sure others come into the kingdom because I've got my eye on the ball. I've got my eye on eternity. I know my time here is short. I don't know when I'm leaving, but I know it's not that far away and I'm preparing for eternity and so I'm gonna do everything in my power to shape my life to conform to the, what God's requiring of me in order to impact the lives around me. So maybe we're here today. How many here say today, Pastor, I have to acknowledge very little sense of urgency in my life. I got my hand up. I don't feel it deep enough. I can tell. You know, how many here could say, you know what, compassion. Do you look at the society and go, I feel compassion for it? Or do you just feel upset? If, you have, if you're just angry and upset and critical, you're not gonna change anything. But if you start having tears in your eyes, you know, we need to weep over the city of Jerusalem like Jesus did. 
Can you see what I'm talking about? Because when you have that attitude, you're willing to do things for other people. Jesus was willing to give his life because he saw the city as lost and doomed. We need to see the city of our, of our world, of our society, of our, of our community, of our, our nation, of the nations of the world. We need to see them as lost, broken, most of them have no clue. Many have never heard the gospel, and some of them have never witnessed the gospel. Well, we've talked to them, but they don't see much of a difference in our life. Remember, God was looking at their lives, these people. He's saying, you guys are going through an outward form, but there's a no inward reality. Just with every head bowed right now, how many are saying, you know what, Pastor? That's kind of describing my life. Outwardly, it's good. I'm not necessarily doing bad things, but I have to admit, there's no, there's no inner intensity. There's no real passion in my life. There's no fervency. There's no sense of urgency. There's no uh, concern. There's no, you know, I, I have to admit, like, Lord, forgive me. You know, you died for people. Am I really willing to give up my life for the sake of others? Or am I just too busy trying to save my life and live a comfortable life on earth? It's gonna go by fast, I'm telling you. My life's moving along. I'm recognizing it. It's moving quickly, guys. Life goes by so fast. And then we're into eternity. How long do you have? I have no idea. But let's make our lives count. Let's make sure that while we were here, we did God's purpose. You know, I said to the first service, you know, you've seen those shows, Mission Impossible. If you were to choose this mission, can you imagine this, this today, if we left this place and said, okay, God, to, this week, you have a mission for me. You have people you want me to talk to. You have people you want me to communicate with or see. There's, there's a mission for me, and I'm willing to pick up the mission. I'm willing to be inconvenienced. I'm willing to do what you're asking me to do this week. I'm willing to make a difference. That's powerful. See, we can sit back here and hear sermon after sermon. Nothing changes. What good is that? That's what Jeremiah was talking about. You're just going through the form, going through emotion. Lord, I want to pray. Lord, stir our hearts. Move us from this place of indifference, this place of neglect, this place of apathy. Lord, I pray that you would stir deep compassion in our hearts for people. I pray today, Father, that you would do a powerful work in our lives, that you would move us from, you know, somehow just, you know, yeah, I'm a Christian, I believe all the right things, but there's a disconnect between what I believe and what I do. It's, it's more intellectual. It's more of a mental ascent. It's not driving my, the, the essence of my being. Lord, I just pray for that deeper sense of passion and compassion, Lord. I just pray that you will help us recognize those opportunities that you're bringing to us. Help us embrace those mission that's, that's right before us, oh God, to, to care and to, to love people and to, to be understanding and to listen and to pray and to serve and to give and to, to do the things that will help people realize that there's a true and living God because they see transformation within us. And that we're literally bringing the kingdom of God into a broken world that's filled with death and dying and despair and hopelessness. There's so much torment in people's lives today. Lord, you've given us life. And we want to choose life today. We want to be people of life. We want to be people of light. We want to be people of hope and people of grace. And we just thank you for that, Father. In Jesus' name, amen.
God bless you as you leave.